This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe to get regular updates to your chosen device. Today we're back on the northern frontier of the Roman Empire for the third instalment of our Hadrian's Wall mini-series. We begin this episode by looking at what happened to the wall following the death in 138 AD of Hadrian, the emperor who commissioned it. Joining us to pick up the story are Dr. Francis Mackintosh, who is curator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region, and properties historian Dr. Andrew Roberts. First of all, Andrew, before we talk about the death of Hadrian, could you remind us what happened on the wall up until this point? So previously, we've had the newly minted Emperor Hadrian turn up in Britain in AD 122 and order the army of Britain to build a wall 73 miles across northern England from the River Tyne in modern-day Newcastle to the Solway Firth as part of his empire-wide programme of frontier reform. It's quite a radical departure from the expansionist policies of his predecessors. Now, we don't know exactly how long this takes, but probably within about 10 years and certainly within the bounds of his reign. Once completed, a garrison of thousands of auxiliary soldiers, originally recruited from around the provinces of the empire, move in to operate the wall, that is to occupy the small turrets, the slightly larger mile castles, and the large forts, such as housesteads. And the wall, in total, is then capable of being used for defending the province of Britannia against raiding, controlling access to the province, and as a statement of Roman power. So the crucial thing for this part of the story, really, is that Hadrian dies in AD 138 in southwestern modern-day Italy at the age of 62, People might be thinking, ah, what happens to the wall at this point? So what did happen to the wall following his death? Well, Hadrian's successor, Antoninus Pius, executes a complete change of frontier policy, at least in Britain. He has his army advance again northwards into lowland Scotland, and about 75 miles north of Hadrian's wall builds another wall, which is called the Antonine Wall. It's about 37 miles long. It's mainly built of turf. And it's another very impressive structure that runs between the Firths of Forth and Clyde. Interesting that it's um, almost half the length. So what's the reason for that? Well, we don't know exactly what Antoninus is doing. Potentially, he's just looking to get a quick victory to sort of secure his position as empire. He has no previous sort of military experience. Perhaps he's kind of dealing with uprisings following Hadrian's death or trying to kind of tackle some kind of problem with raiding. It's certainly a a slightly easier task. Still, it's not an easy task, but it's a slightly easier task because it's across a much narrower part of northern Britain. But we shouldn't be too surprised at this quite stark shift in policy. Hadrian, of course, himself gives up a considerable proportion of the conquests of his predecessor and adoptive father, Trajan. And so emperors didn't necessarily feel beholden to the great achievements of their, of their predecessors. They were very much out to kind of look after their own, own position and, and enact their own policies. And so what we think happened in this period was that Hadrian's Wall is not entirely abandoned. It seems to be sort of run by, by something of a skeleton crew. Certain things are adjusted. So for example, the Vallum, which is the great earthwork that runs in parallel to the south of, of Hadrian's Wall, 
the mounds of the Vallum are partially demolished in places, so to facilitate movement through the wall. But then towards the end of Antoninus's his reign, it seems like the Romans are looking at moving back to Hadrian's Wall, and it seems as though they started refitting Hadrian's Wall. After Antoninus dies, they move back and reoccupy Hadrian's Wall. And Hadrian's Wall now will remain the border of the Roman Empire, more or less, for the next 250 years. Is it possible to say how much of Hadrian's Wall was constructed, how far along it was constructed when Antoninus came to power and replaced, obviously, the late Hadrian? We would imagine it was finished, I'd say. I mean, some people are slightly sceptical about that, but I think it's fairly well accepted that Hadrian Wall was finished within his reign. However, it had also started to be adjusted within Hadrian's reign. So, for example, around but Oswald, the wall was originally constructed in turf, and already before the death of Hadrian, they'd rebuilt part of it in stone. Hadrian's wall then becomes the sort of main point of the end of the Roman Empire in, in the north. What enhancements were made to the wall during that period, and how do we know about these enhancements? So from the time that the wall is reoccupied in the AD 160s until the mid-3rd century, AD, there are some major adjustments made to the infrastructure of the wall. So the the most obvious one is that the sections of the wall from the river Earthing to the Solway Firth, which were originally built in turf, are all replaced in stone, signalling that that what was perhaps originally planned as more of a temporary structure is now going to be for long-term use. And then there are at various points throughout this, this, this century or so, there are various repairs made to the different structures. So for example, the mile castles were reoccupied, they were adapted to the requirements of the garrisons that were there, the vallum was put back into use, and there were sort of repairs to the, the curtain wall itself as well to ensure that it was still in a good state. The wall itself isn't, it's impressive as built, but it's not necessarily the best example of Roman construction. It's done more kind of quickly rather than necessarily to a high standard. So within a few decades, you're going to need to sort of replenish that and then keep replenishing that in order to make sure that it's not going to suffer damage and, and, and start to fail. Perhaps the change to the wall that I think is quite interesting and, and often somewhat overlooked is that the the major bridges that occur along the, the line of the wall that previously only carried sort of simple pedestrian walkways become road bridges. So Chester's Bridge, for example, just to the east of, of Chester's Roman Fort, which is indeed a, an English heritage free site, becomes this rather grand and impressive road bridge which incorporates many kind of decorative elements and you know, nice columns and things like that, and would have been one of the most impressive structures of, of the frontier zone. And I think this is significant because what these bridges do is they enhance the ability to communicate laterally across the frontier, so from west to east, from east to west. And presumably that's to facilitate the movement of people, goods, trade along the frontier, which I think is hugely significant, enabling the establishment and the flourishing of the growing community that's going to be in place along the frontier until the end of Roman Britain. There are also some significant changes to the forts themselves. You're getting new garrisons now coming in and settling down. They're going to be in place for many generations. And they're often adjusting the forts to suit their own needs building new buildings, adjusting some of the, the, the living quarters. And then around these forts, as, as was mentioned in the previous podcast, 
you have a growth of settlements that are thriving due to the sort of the buying power of the soldiers and, and their demands for various wares, for accommodation for their family, etc. What comes with these enhancements is hopefully some records of those enhancements. Um, is it written records of some kind, Francis? Well, you'd like to think there probably is a lot of paperwork. We know they're bureaucratic. Unfortunately, they don't obviously survive. But what we do have are intermittent kind of windows into this building work, this progress and change. And that comes on our inscribed stone generally. So I've kind of had a look in our collections and then, you know, the record from the wall. And we've got a bit of evidence on from almost all the things that Andrew's just talked about. So, for instance, that rebuilding of this turf wall in the west into stone. We have centurial stones which are built into the wall and the century who built that section of wall marks their name on it. We've talked about them in previous episodes. And we have one in particular which um, was put by the Sixth Legion Victrix. And we know that comes from the period when they were rebuilding the turf wall. And it's quite nice to see that continuation of that feature of marking the section of the wall that you did our amazing Bridget Chesters, which Andrew is, you know, rightly sung the praises of. We know there's been repair, both from the kind of sculptural evidence and the archaeological excavation that's been done there, but also from one of the inscriptions, which we've lost lots of the top of it. But um, the bottom section talks about work that has been done under the charge of Alias Longinus, who's a prefect of the cavalry there. Um, and you can see that stone in Chester's museum. And then another one that's again at Chester's Museum and is I think interesting for quite a few reasons. It's a building inscription set up by the first cohort of Dalmatians who were based at Chester's we think in the Antonine period and it, the inscription says the first cohort of Dalmate built this. However when it was found it's been reused upside down in a step in the stairs down into the strong room under the headquarters building in the Principia. So it's telling us about some building work the Dalmatians did in the mid-2nd century, but then that building has obviously gone out of use and someone else has reused that stone. So it really highlights that there's constant work going on to keep maintain these forts. It's just like your house. You know, if you don't keep maintenance upon your house, you know, say you don't clear the gutters or you don't maintain the paintwork, then that means more work down the line. So the army have got to maintain their, you know, where they're living and sometimes that means changing it if it's a different unit or something like that. So our, these inscriptions really show us how this was happening and when this was happening and who was doing it. Yes, regarding the when it was happening, are there dates with these inscriptions? We've got one very specific date. So most of the dates we can kind of say, well, this was around, you know, maybe a 20, 30 year period. Or sometimes you can only say to a century. But one really specific date is a stone, again, from Chester's. And we know that it was on the uh, 30th of October, 221 AD. <laughs> right, that's really <laughs> because specific. It's so, it's so specific. And it's dedicated by Septimius Nilus, who's a prefect of the cavalry, so the unit that were there, the Asturians from northern Spain. He says it's dedicated on October the 30th. And he tells us in the year of the consulship of Gratus and Seleucus, we know exactly what year those two were consuls together. And that's, again, marking some building work that has been done in that period. Most of the time we don't get such great inscriptions, but sometimes we do get lucky. Apart from general building work then to the wall, are there any other clues that are archaeological indicators of changes to life along the wall? 
Well, I was just going to mention as a sort of a um, addendum to what Francis was saying, it's very lucky that we have these archaeological clues because for this period, our historical knowledge is quite limited. We do know, however, that the wall was breached in this period in about AD 180 from the historian Cassius Dio. So perhaps some of this repair work, some of these adjustments are part of a response to tribes from the north crossing the wall and potentially doing damage, or at least the Roman army along the frontier need to up their game and put the wall in better order. In terms of the other archaeological evidence we have, we can say that the army of the wall and the the culture of the people living on the wall changes quite a bit in this period also. There's there's sort of often a kind of an assumption about the Romans is that they're kind of the same sort of the entire period that they are in Britain. But actually, Roman society, Roman culture does develop in the centuries of occupation. So initially, the soldiers of the wall are auxiliaries. They are non-citizens recruited from within the empire and given essentially a deal of serving in the army for 25 years in return for achieving citizenship. And often there's a lot of movement of these these units around the empire. So a lot of the, the units of the wall come to Hadrian's Wall having previously been raised and stationed elsewhere. But by the third century, it seems that that kind of pattern has changed. Firstly, the units of the wall seem to remain in place, essentially in the same, same fort. They're no longer, at least primarily, being recruited from their original locale. They're probably now gaining recruits from the sort of the sons and grandsons of previous members of the garrison who are presumably being brought up in the vicinity of the fort. And by the third century, they are all citizens, partly because if they are descended from other auxiliary soldiers, their family would have earned citizenship through service. But also in the third century, the distinction between citizen and non-citizen is now defunct. The other differences would be that their their equipment is quite different. So if I ask the listeners to kind of imagine what a Roman soldier looks like in their kind of lorica segmentata and their red uniforms, it's not really like that anymore. Roman military equipment starts to change. Um, We'll go into a huge amount of details about it, but for example, the the swords start to change. You get a longer cavalry-style sword as opposed to the previous shorter gladius. However, some things do continue. So the importance of migration to the wall is still is still quite important because the Roman army supplements a lot of its frontier garrisons with units raised from outside of the empire and then brought or posted to fulfill certain duties like border security. So we know that there would have been essentially Germanic war bands recruited into the Roman army living along Hadrian's Wall. For example, the units of uh, Frisians living at, at Housesteads and probably at Bird Oswalds, and they would have come to Hadrian's Wall with their families, and they, they leave quite a distinct material legacy. One of the things I'll, thing I'll briefly mention is that the living quarters changed, the barracks. So while originally we might have expected each unit to be split up into centuries of about 80 men living in these sort of single-shell barrack blocks split into 10 Contiburni with a centurion's house at the end, when they inevitably start to fall into disrepair and they need rebuilding, they're not rebuilt like that. They're actually rebuilt into maybe half a dozen fewer distinct units. And this presumably reflects a reduction in unit strength. So the the strength of a century presumably drops to about half of its original 80. 
So what's going on here is that while there was a kind of an original template for how the war was going to operate, by this point, the kind of the reality on the ground and the evolution of the culture of the wall means that the garrison is kind of making these places their own and and building to suit their own needs. Right. And this is all around the third century, is that right? So it's across this this sort of period, but particularly by the third century, we start to see things like this rebuilding in slightly different styles. And the Frisians, for example, at Oswald, I believe, turn up in the third century. What's interesting, Andrew talks about these units that you know, are brought in and they bring some of their own material culture. So the Frisians who've got Bud Oswald and uh, Housesteads, they seem to bring their own cooking styles and continue to make their own pottery. And we have some of that on display at Housesteads. And these units who are moving around, they bring other things, not just objects. They bring new beliefs and parts of religion. And by the kind of third and fourth century, there's new religions around on the wall, and we see that through our collections. So one of the religions that doesn't really get over to the wall until the early 3rd century is Mithraism. Mithras was originally a Persian deity, so right far in the east of the empire. And the cult was kind of picked up by the army and spreads through the empire with the army and other traders, and that's how it gets up to the wall. And we have on our sites two Mithraim, so the temples to Mithras, one at Carabruff, we know that was built around about 200 AD, and then one south of the fort at Housesteads, where we're not sure exactly when it's built, but it has some amazing altars and inscriptions. And the Mithraic cult's really interesting. It's what's known as one of the kind of mystery religions. You weren't allowed to know what happened unless you were a Mithraic worshipper. And it seems to be quite a complicated cult with a seven-grade hierarchy, would say, where you'd need to do a test or an ordeal to get to the next level. Worship of Mithras was very popular among soldiers, which is why we think it's kind of so prevalent on Hadrian's Wall. We've got two of these temples. And what's interesting, because of the excavation at Carabruff or Procolitia, we know quite a lot about the temple there and it was rebuilt or refurbished four times. So it's obviously being used and repaired and looked after. It seems to have gone out of use by about 350 AD, but you can still visit it today. It's quite a, an atmospheric site. And then another religion that really doesn't kind of get going in Britain or, you know, take hold right until almost the very end of the Roman period is Christianity. Now, obviously, Jesus Christ born, there's a reason we have AD and BC. So born in that very early first century. So that religion is around for a long time. But Christianity across the whole empire isn't, you know, a large religion for a long time. It's persecuted for a long time. It's not until... 313 when Constantine I issued the Edict of Milan where persecution of that religion was officially ended and it's not until 391 that the Emperor Theodosius bans all pagan worship so making the empire Christian completely you know supposedly and so it's not surprising that actually the evidence we have for Christianity is really small upon Hadrian's Wall but it is there if you look and we have a couple of pieces again I feel like Chester's is getting more of its share of the attention today, but it just seems to be the way it's happened. So we have a beautiful jet fingering at Chester's, which has got an inscription around the outside, which reads, the um, translation is, who shall separate mine and thine while life lasts? And then there's a Cairo, so the very Christian symbol inscribed on it. Oh, um, yes. So we have little bits of evidence of Christianity upon Hadrian's Wall, and that's not coming in until the fourth century. So it shows kind of these things spreading through the empire and we just have to look at our archaeology to find little bits of it. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So there's lots of different things going on on the wall and among people living there during those third and fourth centuries. So that's obviously the wall in microcosm. But what about the greater happenings of Roman Britain during that century, the fourth century? What was going on then? We've kind of talked a little bit about the period between the return to the wall and about AD 250, which is the period that we have the best sort of material evidence from from the wall. And then to bring us up to the the fourth century, during the period between about 250 and the mid fourth century, so about AD 350, Britain is going through, well, I'd say the empire actually is going through sort of various different crises. Britain itself is sporadically independent from Rome, and there are various claimants to the imperial throne who are using Britain as a kind of a springboard to go off and then try to claim the, the, the throne. The best example of this, when we've just talked about Christianity, is of course Constantine, who's proclaimed emperor by his soldiers in AD 306. And what this means is that there is a kind of a stripping away of some of the garrison of Britain in order to go off and, and fight some of these battles. At the same time, there's a series of, of incursions by some of the peoples of the north, so the Picts and, and, and the, the Scots. And it, we do think that in this time that the wall was potentially attacked or else indeed bypassed by sea. However, Britain isn't sort of collapsing in this period. Elsewhere, we, we, we actually see a lot of signs of success and indeed of wealth. There's quite some quite lavish spending going on in, on villas in this period. It seems as though Britain, to a certain extent, is insulated from some of the economic shocks that are happening elsewhere, for example, in Gaul. So Hadrian's Wall itself is still occupied. There's still ongoing evidence of ongoing repairs and maintenance, but there are some significant changes to the life of civilians and soldiers by the 4th century. And probably the most important change is that there is a reduction in pay. This is not just for the soldiers of Hadrian's Wall, but throughout the army, this is a, a common phenomenon. So, for example, in terms of the archaeological evidence, we see that some of the grand buildings that have been built previously are slightly less elaborate, particularly the, the houses of the commanding officers are replaced with smaller ones. Perhaps this is indicative of the fact that the command of garrisons are no longer necessarily dominated by the wealthy Roman elite, but those who are careerists perhaps have been promoted up from the ranks. They're not millionaires anymore as they might have been in in the earlier period there's also a less rich material record and this is potentially the result of the fact that the soldiers are uh, receiving less pay and are are probably more likely to have been paid in kind i.e through food and, and other supplies rather than necessarily hard coin it's also a period in which these extramural settlements that have grown up around the forts seem to wither and start to disappear. And so, for example, talk about Chester's a lot today. There's a fabulous bathhouse outside of the fort at Chester's. In this period, there's a bathhouse now built, a smaller bathhouse now built inside the fort rather than outside the fort in the the extramural settlement. Now, we don't entirely understand kind of the timelines of, of how all this takes place or exactly why it's happening, but it does seem to be a result of the changing economics of the army and there's less stimulus, there's less reason to come to these places and to trade with these places if the soldiers aren't getting paid as much, they don't have so much buying power, 
And rather than necessarily needing to source food and other supplies, they get already getting provided with that in kind through the military logistics system. That's really interesting. Francis, is there any evidence of this changing culture in the collections that English Heritage cares for along the wall? Yeah, absolutely. We know that across Britain in the 4th century, the material culture that you get on a site is different to that which you get in the 3rd and the 2nd century. And as Andrew said, for quite a long time, people have said, oh, it's it's a poorer material culture. There's not as much, you know, there's obviously not as much money around, etc., etc. But it's not quite as simple as that. Andrew said, there's less people, there's less soldiers, which means there's going to be less money in the economy. But it doesn't necessarily mean everyone's everyone's poorer, there's just a smaller population. And we know that just some of the material that we have in the 4th century doesn't survive as as well. So we think maybe... One example is we think wine and olive oil might still have been imported into Britain, but it doesn't seem to have been imported in the ceramic vessels, the amphora. It would have been imported in, say, wooden barrels, and they don't survive So, because they're organic material, which doesn't survive. Equally, Samian pottery, which is a, the really bright red pottery that you see across the empire, that production of Samian ware has stopped, and we move much more to local pottery production. So the material culture just changes in terms of what people were using. And one thing that's really hampered our understanding in terms of putting a chronology on things is monumental epigraphy. So these inscriptions of, you know, marking that they've built something or that they've repaired a bridge just seems to stop from the 270s. We also get much fewer inscriptions recording religion and things. So our material culture is just very different and it's taken people, archaeologists, a bit longer to understand how we can look at what's happening in the fourth century in Britain because we're using different materials. But you know, they were using them different materials and we've got to understand that. Not just say it's a poorer material culture, it's just a different one. Just thinking about what you're saying there, it sounds as though the area along Hadrian's Wall, the various forts, have almost become more British than Romano, if you know what I mean. It sounds as though that the decline has already started and perhaps the native culture has started to sort of overplay the... I wouldn't call it a decline, it's a change. And it's kind of, when Hadrian's Wall was built, all the forts are built to a plan and they're all the same and that fort would be the same in Britain, Spain, North Africa. But what you're seeing in the 4th century is an adaptation to the situation that they're living in. I think that's probably fair to say, Andrew, isn't it? So it's yeah, not a decline. I, I, they're adapting decline. to the local conditions. They are, and it, and it, it's still it's still Roman Britain, it's still Romano-British. Then the, the culture hasn't changed from... Roman to British. All, all you've seen is a sort of an evolution of, of Romano-British culture, potentially because of things going on elsewhere in, in the empire, but also because of, of local context. I think what's very interesting about what Francis said and the slight sort of differences to what I said is that you get a different picture from history and the historical data and some of the archaeology from the material culture. And we often, we can see two different things going on. They don't always accord and how you resolve that is quite difficult. Yes, it's always going to be very nuanced with items that are very, very old, I suppose. But if populations at some forts were dwindling, did life and activity move to other places that were more lively and more economically successful? Yes, yeah, so as the population for these extramural settlements seems to disappear or you know massively reduce at the forts, two settlements within the Hadrian's Wall zone 
seem to thrive, and that's Carlisle in the west and Corbridge in the east. And Corbridge is you know, the most northerly town in Roman Britain, so you can come and walk along the high street. So that's what I'm going to kind of focus on. And the evidence from Corbridge, which has been occupied since the early 80s AD, is that this site, which is purely a town, we think, by the 4th century, really is just going really well in the 4th century. Life for people in Corbridge is good. They are making things and they are making money. What we found from looking at the excavation evidence is that there seems to be small-scale manufacturing and metalwork taking place in a large number, around about 70% of the buildings in the settlement in this 4th century period. What we've got are these buildings called strip houses, which are long rectangular buildings that sit on a road or a street frontage. So we think the front part of that building would be a shop front and it's where you, know, where you face your customers. And then the back would be where you make things. There's, we think from looking at the size of the foundations and the walls that these could have been easily two stories. And these houses are built substantially. Many of them have got evidence for plastering internally. So it would have been kind of comfortable standard of accommodation there. So at Corbridge and what we think both Corbridge and Carlisle are doing is it's filling the gap in the market that's been created by all these extramural settlements going out of use. So although there's less soldiers on Hadrian's Wall, you know, potentially with less money, they're still going to need supplies to some extent and other things. So Corbridge is capitalising on that. One really kind of key indicator that there is money in Corbridge is our largest house in the town, which has got 23 rooms. It continues occupation and actually becomes its most opulent at this period. It's got more rooms, the wall pasta is repainted, it has a large kind of garden feature with a little pool in, with a fountain, with our famous lion on. So Corbridge is showing that just because the garrisons have reduced on the wall doesn't mean it's, you know, a poverty stricken area. It's just that we have to look elsewhere for that evidence of, you know, economic activity and trade. And being a town, Corbridge is obviously a modern day settlement as well. So is there more archaeology to potentially discover at Corbridge? Yeah, we're very lucky at Corbridge because the modern town isn't on top of the Roman town. We are about half a mile west of the western edge of the modern town. But even so, when visitors come to Corbridge, you see maybe one twelfth of the size of the Roman town that we think. And some of the town that you can't see has been at excavated but not all of it so there's still a lot more that we don't know we haven't found all the kilns where we know they were making the pottery and many of the temples that we know must have existed from the huge amount of religious sculpture hasn't been found but we're lucky that we do have from the excavations evidence of the fourth century and we talked a bit didn't we just then about some of the buildings but haven't really talked about the objects and that's the things that I you know really like and there's lots of objects from the fourth century, but I thought I'd focus on a bit of the bling. Okay, well, um, <laughs> yes. T- tell us about all the jewellery that's been found. Yeah, so we've got, um, I'm going to kind of do three little groups. So we have a hoard of 48 gold coins from Corbridge that date from 364 to 383 AD. So they must have been deposited after 383 AD. So really exciting gold coins, you know, and you think, oh, brill. But when you actually look, there's only just over 1,000 fourth century coins of gold coins found in the entire of Roman Britain. 500 of those come from one hoard. So if you discount that, there's about 500 gold coins from Roman Britain. We have 48. So that's about 10%, you know, minus this one hoard. So it shows that it's really important, Corbridge, and there must have been a lot of money there to have 
someone to have that many gold coins. We also have four gold finger rings that date from the 3rd and 4th century. Again, gold finger rings are not common pieces. And then my final bit of bling, so it's not all jewellery, is an absolutely magnificent silver tray or platter, which we call the Corbridge Lanx, just because in the 18th century, these trays were called lanxes by um, scholars. And it was found by a little girl playing by the River Tyne, and it's decorated with five figures who are associated with the Greek island of Delos, which was the centre of the worship of Apollo. We think it dates to about the 360s AD, so late late 4th century, and it was probably made somewhere in the Mediterranean. There has been a suggestion that it comes from Ephesus in Turkey, because there we know there was lots of craftsmen who were highly skilled, and that site's very highly linked with the cult of Apollo, but also Artemis and Leto. So our five figures on here are Artemis, who in the Roman world is called Diana, Athena, who in the Roman world is called Minerva, and then Ortigia, Leto, and Apollo. And so it's a very classical design of a very old religion by the 4th century. So never mind the fact that someone's got the money to commission and own something that's made of around about six kilograms of silver. They've been able to commission it and bring it all the way from you know somewhere around the Mediterranean to Corbridge. There are rumours that when the little girl found this piece, it was found with other silver vessels, perhaps some of which had Christian symbols on. But we never saw those. And I think the Lanx really shows the wealth and the culture that's still at Corbridge in the 4th century. Even though, you know, for a long time, and, you know, it's, it, things are massively changing now. People have said the 4th century, particularly on the wall, was, you know, poor and there was no material culture. But you've just got to look for it. And we only have the replica, unfortunately, of the Lanx on display. But it is a beautiful piece and you see something new every time you look at it. Let's move on now to talk about the final phase of life along the wall. Andrew, what was happening across the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th centuries? And also, how did that affect life on the wall? Well, when we're talking about the the final phase, I guess we're talking about roughly the period between about 370 up until the nominal end of Roman Britain in 410 AD. And from the historical record, we get some small snapshots into what is happening in Roman Britain. And the picture is that of the re-emergence of various troubles that have been happening in the previous century, albeit on what seems like a, a more acute scale. So the Picts and the Scots in the north are a persistent threat. They appear to be at various times operating south of the wall. There is a need for Rome to be consistently expending resources to reinforce the army in, in Britain. They keep sending over kind of troubleshooting generals to deal with threats to Roman Britain. But often this backfires because those same generals then feel as though they can perhaps do a better job than the the emperor of the day. So, for example, in the 380s, a general called Magnus Maximus, after putting down a a rebellion, leads an army from Britain to claim the imperial throne. And that army then never goes back to Britain. And then in the early 5th century, so the last decade of, of Roman rule, These problems are repeated and repeated again. We have more trouble in Britain from the Picts. We have the army proclaiming multiple generals as as emperor in Britain. And then more armies appear to go to Gaul and never return. More broadly, Rome itself is beset by threats from Central Europe and is sacked in about 410. And then depending upon which source you believe, the Romans of Britain are told that they should 
fend for themselves, or there is some evidence suggests that the Britons decide that they've, they've had enough and they're going to give up Roman rule and become independent. Exactly what happened is a little bit shrouded in, in mystery, but the general picture seems to be that there is a lack of security in Britain. Britain itself is a threat to the wider empire, and there is a draining away of soldiers and, and resources before finally Britain essentially becomes independent of the empire. And then nothing much is known for the next few generations until the emergence of very different looking independent kingdoms a few generations later. With the change in personnel and um, this sort of thing, did we have forts being abandoned along the wall effectively? Well, up until comparatively recently, the answer to that question would have been yes. And the reasons are, are pretty obvious ones. If you no longer have a kind of a coherent province, or by this point, Britain's actually split into, into four different parts, you no longer require a frontier, or at least not a frontier of, of, of the sort that Hadrian's Wall is. It's also thought that most of the garrison might have left being drawn into wars on the continent. And then finally, that with the end of Roman rule, you essentially have the withdrawal of the pay for the army. So that spending power that can sustain larger communities and indeed the supplies that these these places are, are getting disappears. And so you, you effectively have a collapse of, of larger communities. And to a certain extent, that's still held to be the case that this would have been something of a severe economic shock for particularly sort of larger settlements. However, more recently, archaeology has shown that there wasn't a complete abandonment, at least in, in certain cases. So for example, at Bud Oswald in the late 4th century, we start to see a sort of a, a transition away from the operation of the fort in the way in which it had operated before. We start to see new building types emerges, and that possibly indicates that it's becoming a slightly different kind of society. So the former, formerly stone-built military granaries that would have stored all of these supplies that would have been provided for, for the garrison, they go out of use, and in their place, different structures are built. So in the 5th century, there were a series of large wooden buildings built on top of where the granaries stood, and they could have been in use for, for over a century after 410 AD. And so what we suspect may have happened, and, and we can't be certain, this is, this is kind of speculative, is that the community was able to sustain itself, possibly through farming their locality, and given that you already had a community that was well protected within the walls of the fort, we know that, for example, that the gatehouse, one of the gatehouse continued to be in use, would have had military training, that this society was able to sustain itself potentially as a kind of a, a maybe like a war band under a, a warrior chieftain, Again, we're a bit speculative here, and that these wooden buildings were these kind of feasting halls at the centre of this new type of society. And the suspicion is that if we excavated more forts with sort of the latest archaeological techniques, we might find more evidence of some sort of continuity into the 5th century, at least for a maybe a generation or so for a few decades. But again, we don't have all the evidence yet. It's just a, a kind of a, a tentative picture of some kind of continuity. Are there any objects, Francis, found at places 
such as Bird Oswald and Corbridge that tell us about this late or post-Roman period. You've already talked about the sort of heyday at Corbridge and at Carlisle, where obviously some forts along the wall were starting to be less occupied. But what happens when the real kind of departure sets in? It's even smaller, kind of the amount of small finds or objects, evidence. At Bird Oswald, we were really lucky, obviously, that, as Andrew says, it was this excavation under scientific conditions, so they were able to identify these later layers. We've got kind of a few little pieces from probably after that occupation, but during that late period, there's jet and bone bracelets, which we know are 4th and 5th century, some crossbow brooches, which are late 4th uh, military brooches. And then in the 6th century, we have one coin, which is a called a half follis, and it's of the Emperor Justinian I, who is a Byzantine emperor. So the empire is split into two by this point. Um, and we have a coin of him. We have a small brooch from the 6th century. And that coin seems to link Bird Oswald with other sites along the West Coast. So one of the very famous ones is Tintagel in Cornwall, which shows that the Britain has still got trade links with what is the eastern part of the Roman Empire, which becomes the Byzantine Empire. And so Bird Oswald is perhaps still occupied in that period, and that coin is you know, one small piece of evidence of that. We don't have very much of the material culture. At Corbridge, we think that the town probably kind of just slowly dies out as its market is gone. And we know that by the 7th century, at least a large part of the town must have been abandoned because stone was taken to build Hexham Abbey, which is just a few miles west of us. The Edwardian excavations did find two Anglo-Saxon burials from the 6th or 7th century, which had brooches and beads. And again, if people are being buried there, it seems like the town isn't occupied. So the objects, we need to do probably more excavation and find more to really kind of understand what's happening. And in that very late or post-Roman period, again, the material culture is just different. And we think there's probably a lot more organic materials that have been lost and we don't now have. Based on what you're saying there, it sounds that our understanding of Romano-British history and beyond is always going to evolve. And as new archaeological excavations take place and new objects and structures are unearthed, that will inevitably happen. So is it fair to describe this later period in the history of Hadrian's Wall as the end? Or is it fairer to describe it as the beginning of a new chapter in its history? I think the latter, there is a human tendency to sort of see almost like a human-esque lifestyle, uh, life cycle, I should say, of, of something being born, it sort of maturing and then tails off towards the sort of the end of its life. And But I, I think that the people who are living on the wall in, in the fourth century and, and even potentially in Bird Oswald in the fifth century are not sort of sitting there thinking, well, we've had a good run, folks, but we're, we're no, not as good as those mid-second century uh, Romans in their shiny armour and their, their very, uh, you know, uh, well-run frontier. And as, as Francis has sort of mentioned there, we have to take each of these kind of periods on their own terms and kind of try to understand that those societies, um, not necessarily in comparison with, with what's come before and what comes afterwards. So I think the second of your, your metaphors of, of different chapters is more appropriate. Perhaps we've reached the end of the, of the frontier chapter, but we're moving into chapters that are interesting in their own right. 
the wall is still going to remain a place where people live. In fact, as, as Francis was mentioning there, um, when it came to Corbridge and the reuse of stone at Hexham, a lot of the stone and the materials of, of the wall gets reused elsewhere and gives life to other settlements. It's still going to remain part of a contested landscape in the medieval period. And then from the early modern period, Hadrian's Wall becomes this important concept, actually, in, in literature, in art, in, in history and understanding of our, of our own past. And then, of course, in the current day, it's still a place for people to live and an important tourist destination and, and, and a really thriving community. And I think that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Indeed, and there is plenty to talk about, as, uh, of course, through our four-part mini-series, and we'll conclude that the next time. But what do you think it was about the wall that helped it endure for so long? Well, that's a question, isn't it? I imagine each Roman emperor probably saw it differently after Hadrian. We know, you know, obviously, Antoninus Pius did see it differently, but it's there as a marker in that Roman Empire. It's acting as that boundary whether that's just for tax or, you know, controlling movement or it is, you know, the defensive monument, all of these things will play a part in why it kind of continued to be manned to whichever extent. You're not going to just abandon something that was such an investment in time and resources and is still playing a, a role and a function, even if that function changes across the 250 years of its Roman life. What do you think, Andrew? So I guess in the first episode of this series, I tried to sort of lay out Hadrian's grand vision to put the wall in the kind of the context of his wider policy. And we Indeed, we, d- we discussed his kind of potential involvement, the possibility that he had quite a direct role in the blueprint for the wall. But what Francis has just mentioned, and what I think this episode hopefully shows, is that regardless of what Hadrian orders, the wall becomes something that goes way beyond simply one emperor's vision and one person's agency, you get different kinds of people. You get, yes, emperors and generals and uh, etc., but also ordinary people coming along and investing in its material, investing in its community. And while it kind of maintains this scope and scale of, of its original concept, it does change, it becomes something else, and it continues being, being reimagined via the, the agency of many different hands. So I think that by the end of the period, okay, it's Hadrian's Wall still to a certain extent, but I, I think it belongs to a multitude of different people. And indeed, when we, we come to the next episode, we're going to see how then others come along and they turn it into other things and they continue that story and perpetuate the legacy. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, it's part two of our Wars of the Roses mini-series as we look at the life and death of Richard III. His image after his death was certainly blackened, and it's a case of modern historians to try and sift through to try and analyse the actual truth of the events that took place. Thanks for listening. See you next time.